Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masecha Nidarim, daf Kaf Aleph, page 21. Well, we're going to begin already Perak Shlishi, the third Perak of Nidarim. It actually begins right at the bottom of Kaf. Um, and as we said yesterday, we were going to start it today. And it's a very interesting Mishnah because it really talks about uh, sort of certain types of Nidarim that uh, we basically say are not real nedars, but still a person should not do or say because you're formulating them or you're saying speech that is like a nedar itself. So these are things you should avoid doing, but they're not going to be considered an actual for nedar. So the Mishnah begins as follows. So there are four types of nedarim that are permitted, and you'll get to the piece of the Gemara that explains that a little bit more. Nedare zruzin. So Zruzin, like, remember, Zrizu le mitzvot is somebody who's, like, eager uh, to do a mitzvah quickly. But the English translation to this is sort of motivational nidarim. Um, and uh, we'll get to a little bit more of what that means. The nidare havai, nidare havai, exaggerated nidarim. Nidare shigagot, uh, which are mistaken nidarim. The nidare pochat. Sorry, the nidare onasin which are nidarim of, of some type of circumstance that was beyond, uh, that was beyond your control. Nidare zruzin ketzad. So how does nidare zruzin work? Right? So let's say uh, somebody is selling some type of object, right? The Amar. And he says, So he says to the buyer, a konam, that I won't lower my selling price to you less than a seller, which is four dinars. Bahala Omer, and then the buyer says to him, Konam sheni mosif lecha al hashekel. And the buyer says, a konam that I will not raise my offer to you more than a shekel, which is two dinars. Shnei hemrotzim dinarim. And then both basically become agreeable to a price of three dinars. In other words, they sort of meet somewhere in the middle. And part of what the Gemara wants to know is, is when you speak like that, even though it's sort of, uh, you know, using neder language, is that sort of just a typical way, not an endorsed way, not a way that we want you to, but a typical way that people speak uh, in, you know, in the business realm in order to just sort of strike a deal. And so the Gemara wants to understand this, right? So Rabbi Abba Bar Mamal says to Rabbi Ami, Amarta la, you said to us in the name of Rabbi Yehuda Nesia, who is the Tana who taught this Mishnah for Nidarim? Rabbi Yehuda, it's the Mishnah is authored by Rabbi Yehuda. To Amr Mishum Rabbi Tarpon, who says in the name of Rabbi Tarpon, right? So in fact, neither of them is a Nazir, according to Rabbi Tarpon because the laws of Nazirat were not given except when it was very clear. Now, that the fact that the Gemara starts off with a discussion of who authored the Mishnah, that is very typical. What makes this piece very, very tricky is that this statement of Rabbi Tarfon is actually referring to a Gemara that appears in Mishnah. Sorry, it's a Gemara, it's a Mishnah that appears in Nazir on Daf Lamed Bet. And again, this is a classic example of how sort of the Gemara assumes we know everything about everything. And there, what the case is, is that let's say you have two people who are on a road together and they see Ruvain approaching them. Somebody's approaching them. 
And one makes a nether and says, I know that that's Ruvain. And if, you know, and, and if it's, if it's, you know, and if it isn't, uh, I will be a Nazir. And the other one says, I know that it's not Ruvain. And if it is, I'll be a Nazir. Okay. Now, basically one of them is going to be a Nazir. One of them is not going to be a Nazir. So, um, so Rabbi Tarfon basically says, uh, you know, that basically, um, you know, neither one is actually a Nazir because the language is not clear. It's not a good way to take a Nazir of Nazir. So basically based on that, right, Rabbi Yehuda, right, who says in the name of Rabbi Yehuda that you need this type of clarity, right? These are a list of type of Nazarim where there's something about the language that makes it a little bit not clear. So this Mishnah must be according to Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi doesn't like this. Rabbi Amar Filutema Rabbanani says you could even say this Mishnah is like the rabbis who don't hold like Rabbi Tarfon about these type of conditional unclear Nadarim, right? Mikatani Shnei too, because the Mishnah says both agree to three dinars. Shnei Hemran Katani. Both are agreeable is what the Mishnah is saying, right? And so the point of that um, is that since... Uh, both of them, the Mishnah makes clear that in the end, they both agree to some sort of end price, right? What this is basically saying is, is that neither one intended that at the begin that their original statement was a true statement. So it's actually, it's not a question of condition. It's not a question of clarity. The, the real issue is, is that this is, was a, a nether that was made, but it, it's making a type of speech where it's clear the person doesn't actually mean what he says. And even the rabbis would agree that would not uphold. So, you know, just a very quick, I just wanted to do that beginning of the, of the Gemara before I hand it over to you, Anne. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see what these four types of categories are of these Nidarim Matirin. And I'm going to leave it to you to explain what this language is about Nidarim Matirin. Like, what does that actually mean? That these are permitted Nidars. And again, but I think a thing, to think about is almost like the way in Shabbos we talked about like pater aval asr, like you don't have to bring a korban chatat. You didn't do one of the malachot, one of the prohibited labors, but it's asur. That's the same thing here. Like these aren't ways that we're encouraging a person to speak. They should not actually be speaking this way. That I think is the the hinge really of the whole discussion that I'm going to address now and I'm going to bet that they should not be speaking this way. Uh, the Gemara here says, Amar of Yehuda, Amar of Asi, Arba'im, the Gemara here says that these four types of vows, and it's not, it doesn't actually specify what these specific vows are, at least not yet, right? But they, they require that you go to a chacham, meaning that the person who made the vow and wants to be released from it needs to ask a halachic authority to be able to be released. Now, the tricky thing here is that all of the commentaries, like everybody agrees that these are the kinds of vows that aren't really vows. They don't really they don't really bind the person who made the vow to the vow to begin with, it seems, right? It certainly does not really require that there be like a baiting to nullify the vow, right? Rather, the issue seems to be that there's a concern that we don't take vows lightly. So we're not going to just, you know, flagrantly use the language of a neder, even in the event of a neder not, of it not really being a neder. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda says, it's really Rabbi Yehuda asking the question here, that when I asked this before Shmuel, he said that the Tana says that the Chachamim, they untied these vows, meaning they weren't, they weren't 
um, they did not have any difficulty dissolving the vows. So why would they have to go to the halachic authority? So I've already preempted that to, with some of the commentary that I've seen. Um, one point I think made in the name of the Ritva. Rav Yosef lishna. So Rav Yosef taught the halacha this way. He said that Rav Yehuda said, Rav Asi said, that halachic authority, on Rav Yehuda and Rav Asi, ain chacham rashai latir, the only kind of vow that a halachic authority could simply nullify, could simply untie, is the kind of thing that is follows this same kind of language. So that, let's say somebody makes a vow by mistake or they realize that they shouldn't do it and they regret it terribly, right? So then this that's the kind of situation where the chacham can say, you don't have to worry about it. But why do you have to go to a chacham? Because you have to make sure, like, because we don't want the person who said the vow to treat the vows lightly. Um, what does this mean? Because we don't get into the discussion. We don't even open up the question of untying a vow based on regret. And the rest of the daf really gets into this issue of regret, regret. That meaning, does a person regret that they said this vow to begin with. And if they regret that they've said it, well, then that's grounds to dissolve it, right? But the question is, do you need regret to to um, to um be able to dissolve it? And moreover, if a if the halachic authority is going to then probe the situation and say, so, you who made this vow, do you regret having made this vow? The concern is, of course, that the person is then at risk of lying and saying, yes, yes, I regret it, when really the reason he's trying to get out of it is for some other, let's say, monetary or some, some other kind of reason, the regret as opposed to being a regret about making a vow. So the Gemara brings several stories, and this goes on to the top of the next staff as well. How the Atila Kamed Rav Huna, somebody comes before Rav Huna and wants to untie or to dissolve a vow. Amarle, libach alach, is your heart upon you? Meaning, do you still, are you still thinking this? Are you still feeling the same way that when you made the vow? Amarle, um, lo, he says no. I, like, he's changed his mind. He's no longer in the same state of mind that he was when he made the vow. Vishaya. So then Rav Huna dissolves the vow. Now, this seems to be that the person who made the vow is now able to undo it simply based on the regret, right? Meaning I'm no longer in that same space, that same mindset, and I have a different thought about it and so, therefore, we can say, we can suggest the Rav Huna's um, understanding is that regret alone is enough to nullify a vow. Again, this is a specific kind of vow, the kind of vow that perhaps didn't need any nullification to begin with. But the position of the Gemara is very starkly, go ask a Rav, or that it has to go before um, an authority. And the halachic authority person then has to probe the situation. I said before that it's, you know, you don't want to take the, nobody should be seen, nobody should see taking vows as a light matter. But on the other hand, it's also not just a show, right? Meaning this process gives us some understanding of what it is, how Chazal themselves related to these kinds of vows and when they would, what they were required to undo them. Is regret enough? Is regret not part of the story? Another person came before um, Rabba Rafuna, right? I, I assume this is the same Ravuna, and this is his son, right? Rabba Rafuna. If there were 10 people who are, you know, who could have 
Um, the term here is a face is to appease. You know, at the time that you made this vow, would you then have made this vow? Meaning, if you could have had a different scenario, would you still have gone through with it? And he says no. So then, therefore, he um, Rabbi Barufuna dissolves the vow. And again, the implication is that since he wouldn't have upheld it, that's a kind of regret. Um, okay, and this is exactly the the kind of story that continues along. There's another one in the name of Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Yossi. And again, they ask the same question about the 10 people. Would you have carried it through? Would you have taken the same bow? He says, no, they dissolve it. Okay, now we have a person who comes before Rav Asi. You'll remember Rav Asi was at the beginning of the part that I was talking about, Amar Avhuda, Amar Rav Asi. So this is partially Rav Asi's opinion to begin with about the nature of these vows that you have to ask of Allahic authority. What better Allahic authority to ask than Rav Asi himself? Rav Asi says, Are you, do you regret it? Amarle, low? Meaning, do I not have regret? Of course I regret. That's why I'm here to undo the vow. And so they undo it. And then the the another person, a similar situation comes before Rebelazar, and he says, Did you want to make this vow? Um, bite Nador, Amarle, Ilu Lo Margazili, Lo Bainan Klum. He says, If they had not made me angry, I wouldn't have wanted anything. I would never have made this vow. So then he says, Rebelazar says to him, So then let it be what you want. And again, the vow is dissolved. Um, I want to make the point that nobody's giving anybody a hard time here, but the dissolving of vows. But there is a process, and the process seems to involve, you know, and get again coming forward, speaking to the rev, saying that your current situation makes it clear that what you did before is not what you would do again. Were you back in that same situation? And then lastly, because as I said, the stories continue on to the next staff. We have a case of a woman, Haiita da Adarta Livrata. A woman took a vow about her daughter. And specifically, the, the context is that the daughter cannot get any benefit from her. They come before Rabbi Yochanan. He says to her, He said, what would, if you had known that your neighbors would be talking about your daughter, and now I'm at the very top of the next stuff just to finish off this story, right? Meaning, if it if if you had known that people were going to talk about you in this way as being a an inappropriate situation, would you have taken that vow? And of course, the position is no. Who who would have done such a thing? She, she says no. He dissolves it, and and everybody carries on the merry way as if the vow was never there. The people who take these vows take them very seriously. The people who undo the vows go through a process which again treats the vow seriously, but again they seem not to really need anything to to kind of dissolve for the vow itself to not be binding on the person. Right. But I think the point is, is you couldn't just get your vow absolved by anybody. Like you really had to go to an expert in vows. Maybe. I, I, that's the part that's not clear to me. From the halacha commentary that I read, it's it seems to be a machloka to begin with, meaning a machloka rishonim, a machloka well, from the very I think the idea is you need to have someone who knows how to do the potchim, like who kind of understands where you find the opening. Where you find, you know, I, I, I hear except, what you're except for the view that says this never needed undoing because it never man, it was never binding to begin with. But since I, I, I'm not talking about these specific situations, uh, I'm saying in general, like for the regular vow that needed undoing, that you had to go for, for sure. an expert, right? Absolutely, I think, right. I think the question is, 
what's listed in the Mishnah here? Are these the types of sort of non-vow vows that are so obvious to not be a vow that yes, you would not need a chacham to do it because we know it's not really a vow. But I would say that it's also a little bit reassuring. I think that sometimes when people say these like, I swear kind of language type of things and they never mean it in a serious way. They know that it's, you know, a ridiculous exaggeration type of thing. So the Gemara Chazal now Halacha doesn't want people using Lashon Neder, the formulation of Nedarim, to say anything, right? Only if you're truly taking an actual oath, you know, under under the proper circumstances, the proper vow. I don't want to say oath, right? But but there's a recognition that there are things that are formulated in the way of vows that were never really vows. I think there's something reassuring in that as well. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Bring this review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hajim website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.